0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with my friend, Julian Shapiro. How's it going, Julian? Great, man. For those who don't know, Julian's been on the show a couple times, maybe three times now or four. You're my uh, I guess podcast co-host for our other show, Brains. You're an investor at Julian.Capital. You're a writer at Julian.com. You are a tweet master
1: with an unimaginable number of followers. How many followers are you up to now? Man, it makes me feel cringe to give you the answer because I'm, like, I'm boasting about it, but uh, I think a quarter million order of a
0: million followers and like this time two years ago you're like 10 times less than that i think
1: yeah it's it's, been, it's i think i was one of the first people to realizing the power of threads for fast follower growth yeah and now everyone's doing it so i think each one of us unless you really want to lean hard into the clickbait game which i find a bit cringe and it's not something i want to do but unless you lean hard into that the rate of growth for twitter followers now i think is declining yeah. because everyone's doing these threads everyone's doing it i'm almost never on twitter I actually sent out my first tweets in a while, like a couple
0: days ago. But when I do go on Twitter, <laughs> half of what I see is people saying, I fucking hate Twitter. Or no, threads. it's
1: like, it's like I made $4 million doing X, and I lost $100 million doing Y. Here are my 10 biggest lessons. <laughs> you know? um, but my question for you is, if you're not addicted to checking Twitter, yeah, I'm sure you're addicted to checking something. I'm guessing it's Reddit? No, I'm honestly, I check Hacker News probably every
0: day. But it's not like I spend very little time on it. I go, I browse the stories. I leave. I'm just living life, man. I've been like living my offline life much harder than I have uh, probably in the last 15 years. You know, I was in Italy for a couple weeks recently. I had a big party for my birthday. Got an Airbnb. Invited a bunch of friends. Before that, just stuff like that. And so I'm mostly, if I'm at my computer, I'm working. And if I'm not working, I'm doing other stuff. So what gives you the greatest happiness these days? People, easily. People. Meeting new people. Introducing them to each other, hanging out with them. Andy Hackers is super fun too. I've been like rejuvenated because I was trapped in an Airbnb with my brother for a couple weeks in Italy. We both got COVID. And so we were just like jamming on Andy Hackers stuff. And like work for me, I'm a very social person. So work for me is like way more energizing if I'm working on a cool project with somebody else that mm-hmm. I like. So it's like maybe a tie between those two things. What about mm-hmm. you? Interesting.
1: You seem really jazzed on investing nowadays. Yeah, I find it's interesting because. I originally had the impression, which I imagine a lot of founders do, that investing is this sort of thing you do when you're out of ideas and you're just kind <laughs> of, you're, you're just like... you are washed up. Yeah, you, yeah, maybe, but it's more like you no longer want to be an operator or you don't have what right. it takes to be an operator, like a founder. Then I got obsessed with it and someone asked me, like, why are you doing this? And I said, it's extremely fun to just work with the very best of the best founders and ride those rocket ships without doing any of the work. You know, I get like a front row seat to the coolest companies. And if you're actually making a concerted effort to not just invest in like MarTech tools and, um, you know, a Twitter clone, I'm not saying those are bad companies or even that they're not good for the world, but they're not exciting. What is exciting is when you're working with a climate change company uh, or you're working with like a quantum computing company, which I'm not because I'd be in it over my head. But there are some types of companies, you're like, holy shit, this is actually the future. And I'm looking five years ahead into the future. Like a great example is there's a gut health company. It's called Microbiome Company that I invested in that pioneered something that is easily four years ahead of the market. And most doctors don't even know such a thing is possible. Like a supercharged version of probiotics that actually works as opposed to being this transient marginal benefit. Um, Through a bunch of ML work, finding the best Sort of uh, design of the ideal probiotic, really interesting stuff. I'm riding that rocket ship, which will be the future of gut health. That is so freaking rewarding, you know. Um, yeah. And then I'm trying to help them with growth. So tech is cool like that. If you're an angel investor, like you say, you get to see all
0: these deals for p- companies that like aren't public yet, nobody knows about yet. Uh, it's also really lucrative. Like when I think about making money in tech, uh, I have a lot of friends over the years who are like, Ah, uh, I'm broke. I wish I made more money. And I, I tell almost all of them, Learn how to code. Right, it's not easy to do, but it's 100% doable. Like you, if you put your mind to it, you can do it, and about a year or less, and get a job at a company, and keep getting better, and work your way up, and like make a lot of money, make hundreds of thousands of dollars in salary and equity. Uh, it's one of the easiest jobs you could possibly get that makes that much money. And then beyond that, once my friends have learned how to code and they start getting bored of that, I'm like, hey, you should become a founder. You know, as a founder, you can own a piece of a business. It's one of the best ways to basically get wealthy and change the world in some way it's more rewarding you work for yourself you don't have to work for the man and like if you fail you can always fall back on your coding skills and just go get a job somewhere making like two or three hundred k at like some big brand name tech company so like why why the hell not but like increasingly feel like there's a whole nother level above that where like my friends who are investors like you are like <laughs> being a being a founder is for chumps <laughs> why don't you become an investor and instead of, instead of owning like a piece of one business and spending all your time on that you know own a piece of like Dozens or hundreds of businesses work with lots of different founders, and some of them take off in like a really, really big way. And so like that might be even like a better way to make money in tech.
1: I mean, it definitely is. I mean, it's a, dere- it's, a it's a much more risk way to make money because now you have a basket of startups giving you income as opposed to a future income as opposed to one. Um, I, re- I knew something was – I knew venture was way more rewarding and intellectually interesting Then people let on when I noticed that all of the people who everyone points at as the most successful and the smartest people in tech, the unicorn founders, um, all of them are investing on the side, like 100% of them. They're either angel investing or they've raised $20 million and have a side fund, all of them. So people who could do anything in the world with their time, Naval, Balaji, then you have of course people who are full-time VCs like Mark Andreessen who could be doing anything in the world he wants to do. It's already worth a billion dollars. Yep. Um, the founders of almost every unicorn company that's been a unicorn for a few years like the founders of Dropbox yeah. why are founders all of, Stripe, of them all of Stripe, 100% Stripe itself why are all of these people spending hours and hours per week doing this even though they don't need more money because it's super intellectually stimulating to play the game of trying to go and find the best possible companies to help them and then to on an emotional level like I was speaking to earlier be part of that rocket ship So it's the emotional level, and then I just mentioned the intellectual level is it's fun to try to reverse engineer the mental models to identify what are the very best companies that are most likely to succeed, Um, and then playing a game, like a competitive game where you're trying to get into rounds with minimal allocations that you're trying to convince to take your your capital, because the really good ones are hard to get into typically, right? So I think
0: like... Yeah. One of the biggest like, hurdles, like, if you want to become a software engineer, it's like, all right, well, like, what do you have to do to do that? To do that? You need time. You need, ideally, a mentor or a course or something to learn. And that, that's, you need, you know, kind of smarts, and that's it. But to be a founder, okay, you usually need, like, some amount of money to fall back on, like, a, some runway, uh, some confidence, you know, an idea, but still, like, not that much. Um, ideally, a life that supports it. You know, if you have, like, a mortgage and a family and kids, it's, like, a little bit harder and scarier. Uh, but to be an investor, it feels like you need a lot of money. Like I've never really, I've invested in a few companies, but it's like, I don't have like a lot of money sending my bank account. Like I'm not that liquid. Right. Whereas most of the people that you're talking about who are investors are like people who've already exited their companies. They have millions of dollars to play with and they can therefore like create their fortunes. And so I think one of the toughest things like to get into this is like, well, how do you even finance being an investor and who can do this? Right. Do you need a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars? Like, can you invest if you have, you know, considerably less than that?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question. So, Step one, I would like to think, I mean, there's no there's no rules. I'll just walk through what I think is, is a smart way to do it. Step one, invest with your own capital because you really want skin in the game to learn lessons hard, iterate on your mental models for how to pick the best startups, and then go through that torment and those bad choices before you invest other people's capital. And so usually there's a rule of thumb, something like create an initial portfolio of let's say 30 companies, 30, 35 companies, To have enough surface area such that at least one goes to the moon. That's that's an often sort of rule of thumb you might hear. And so let's just say we follow that. Let's say we go for the 35 companies. The check sizes are actually irrelevant insofar as proving to yourself the good versus bad. Obviously, the larger the check, the more skin in the game, the more you're gonna learn a hard lesson, which is important. What's like the smallest though? What's like the smallest check size yeah. well, that you're, you're, I can write into a company and be like, can I invest? Right. <laughs> if so, I want to invest in 35 companies, that sounds like expensive. Right. So the, you know, there's a practical limit, of course, which is what check size can you write that doesn't exclude you from the best companies? You don't want to suffer from adverse selection and just be able to invest 1K where people like oh, they need the money really badly, right? So in practice... Yes, most founders don't want to take tiny checks, so it requires extra hustle if you don't have a lot of capital to start with. Um, if you know, I mean, there's no hard answer here, but usually people on the low end are writing angel checks on the low end of like twenty, twenty-five k. Usually, right. uh, that I've seen. I'm sure there's people are writing lower. I'm sure there's a lot of ten k's out there as well. And so I've done like token investments of like five thousand dollars. Right. And so if you sometimes. can get away with five k, I would, and I would couple that with your value add. And it's use VC speak for them to be willing to take your 5K, which is small and kind of a waste of time in many cases. It's because they think you provide value. And so the types of value that founders usually appreciate is help with recruiting. I mean, if you can immediately make introductions to key people they can talk to, that shows a lot. Uh, it's help with growth. So tactical advice for how to grow. Uh, it could be a Rolodex if they're if they're like a B2B enterprise company and they only sell to a few folks and you know a couple of them, that could be huge. Or distribution. So you have a newsletter kind of like Packy McCormick or Lenny Rachitsky, and you can promise them some distribution. So there are ways to 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 pad your 5k. But the point is, let's say you do 5K times 30-ish checks. Get that out of your system and we can talk about what that what does that process look like? How do we pick which ones to invest in? And then, to your point, if you don't have a lot of money, you're not super rich, that's okay. Most GPs, general partners of venture funds, aren't super rich going in, from what I've seen. And you take other people's money. This is the whole reason why Angel has created rolling funds, to make it as easy as possible for you to publicly solicit funds from your audience, from your family, from your followers, and just get small checks, stitch them together, put together a larger vehicle, and you can keep raising over time.
0: Right. I think one of the things that discourages me the most is that it's a lot of work, right? Like it's like being a parent, right? You can, you can be like an absentee parent and just have a lot of kids with a lot of different people and then just disappear. Right. You can be an investor and be like, "Ah, I've invested in these companies. I don't care. Right. Or you can be like more of like a present parent or investor where it's like, okay, I've invested in these companies. I want to keep up with them. I want to follow them. I want to help the founders when they email me and ask, you know, if I can help them hire somebody, like it feels good to be able to say yes. And like put yourself And their shoes and like sort of help out. Right. And personally, I've never had the time to do that because I'm so focused on anti hackers and other things that like for me to be an investor, it just feels like ah, I'm going to be a letdown to everybody. Like even when I get like emails asking me to do intros and stuff, I'm like, this just feels like a chore. (laughs) I don't really want to do any of this stuff. It feels like you got to be kind of full time on it to be a good investor and to like, I guess, deliver this value that you're talking about to founders. Otherwise, it's just annoying.
1: So I, first of all, I agree. I mean, investing, is in, it's increasingly important, I think, that you become a full-time investor if you do. I'm not saying you have to be, but that you spend more and more time on investing if you are an investor because of how competitive ventures become. Like everyone has a fund, it feels like. A lot of it, people with crazy good value add and big audiences can squeeze into deals way before you do, leaving you with kind of like the second pickings, which again goes to this adverse selection problem, which is if you're seeing a deal, you want to ask yourself, why am I seeing it? Is it because no one else wanted to go in? So if you want to minimize adverse selection, a lot of founders, a lot of investors are doing no work to do so. Most investors that I've seen, at least on the smaller scale, I'm not talking about the large, large funds, but people with, you know, let's say $10 million to $20 million funds, they're lazily waiting for deals to come to them. And that is if you're only investing in stuff within arm's reach and not doing outbound, not aggressively putting sourcing channels in place to find new deals, you will inherently suffer from adverse selection because there's going to be so many awesome ones that get swept up that won't have come your way in the first place. Yeah. So you were mentioning value add, scaling right. value add. Well, I don't think it scales well at all. And so the way I do it is after I invest, uh, I'll be very hands-on for a short period of time to help set them in the right direction uh, growth-wise. But after that, uh, I scale myself by writing memos. So on Julian Capital. I have a sort of notion looking website that is these memos I've written for founders to better grow their company. And what I do is I collect the incoming questions from founders and I sort of tag them. And when I get a question that comes in very frequently, I'll eventually sit myself down and spend a full weekend writing a very in-depth, very tactical, very helpful memo and response. Whereas most investors might just hop on a call for 20 minutes and just give them like an off the cuff response. But founders would much rather have a memo that walks them through step-by-step what to do. Like, how do we hire the best marketers? Uh, How do we actually pursue product-led growth? How do we structure a marketing team? I'm not going to cover this verbally in 20 minutes and do it justice. So I scale myself by not doing calls religiously and instead using memos as as the means to spread advice back with all the founders, not just one-on-one. Who do you think... Like, you're a very systematic guy,
0: right? Like, again, like I watched you grow your Twitter account from like nothing to a quarter of a million followers just by being very systematic and like sticking with the process. Uh, You're doing the same thing with investing. I'm pretty sure you're going to make a ton of money through investing because you're just going to apply your Julian uh, frameworks to it. I'm sure like our other podcast brains, if we wanted to blow it up, like we do the same thing if we put in the time, who else do you think is killing it with investing? Like Mm -hmm. when you look out into the tech investing world, angel investors, like who's inspiring you and like also like how well are they doing? Are people making, you know, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars? Like how, what's kind of like the, Pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of being a good angel investor.
1: I guess maybe the folks who are inspiring are those who have phenomenal reputations among their existing founders. And then when their when their existing founders' friends start companies, they go, "You have to take money from blah." Like Hadley Harris at Eniac, um, Leo Polovets from Seuss Ventures, are people who founders just apps. Ryan Hoover from Weekend Fund. These are people who founders love. And they're preferential, they're sort of, uh, it's like the opposite of adverse selection. The best ones are hearing about them and saying, okay, let me start with Leo as the first person I'm going to tell this idea to because I really want him in. So those are the people who I think are inspiring. Uh, In terms of who's making the most money, well, what's crazy is the way the fund economics work is you get, I mean, many people listening will know this, I apologize, but for those who don't. You get a percentage of the profit made from your fund's investments, so beyond when you return the, the your own investor's principal capital. Uh, but you also get paid a management fee. And the management fee is sort of like an annual salary. And that management fee is tied to how large is your fund. So if Andreessen and Horowitz just raised, I think, collectively, $9 billion worth of funds just recently, I think. I don't. I, I think that's right. That's such an insane number. Because the management fee adds up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, it's like two hundred million dollars. (laughs) Yeah. And just fees they get for free every
0: year to do whatever they want. Which hire people, build cool offices,
1: pay themselves. I mean, mean, talk about like that would be that would be more than a unicorn company. You know what I mean? That would be an enormous multi-billion dollar company. And they don't have I mean they do have a lot of expenses because they've hired a lot of people in Andreessen Horowitz's case. But you can really minimize and streamline expenses. So it becomes wildly lucrative when you raise a lot of funds, um, right. which is a little bit weird, kind of a weird, perverse incentive. I'm actually not a big fan it of is. it. I really yeah. think almost all of that money should not be management fee but should be incentive-aligned, quote-unquote, carry, they call it, which is your take of future profits. And so the point is the other reason why rich people do venture is because quite frankly, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, it can pay better than the crazy high salaries they were already making. Or even if you take however much they sold their company for, let's say they sold a billion-dollar company, they had a certain percentage of ownership that left them with $80 million. And let's say it took them 10 years um, to build a company grown. So we spread that over 10 years, they made $8 million a year. They can make $8 million a year. Uh, from a large fund. I mean, that that's actually kind of pushing it. Maybe I'm being a little bit crazier, but it doesn't pay way off. It's not like orders of magnitude off. So it can become as as lucrative, but de-risked because all your eggs are not in one basket of your own startup. Uh, and it, it keeps you intellectually stimulated and emotionally stimulated because you don't get tired of your one idea. You're right. now riding a bunch of rocket ships, and it's just it's just a blast if you're skipping between cool sectors and climate change and quantum computing and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: think this whole incentive thing is is very interesting because it's like, okay, well, ideally if you're giving somebody money, like you want them to be working their ass off to invest it in the right companies. Right. And so you want the incentives to be aligned such that they really only make money when they're making good investments and making you money as their investor. But, you know, if they've raised this humongous fund and they're collecting 2% fees every year and they're just like, that's enough for them to make millions of dollars, then it's like, what incentive do they really have to try that hard? And I, I've seen like a lot of this. Like there's almost like this like, indie hacker version of an investor that's arisen in the last five or 10 years where it's like, okay, you can be Ryan Hoover, make a really successful, you know, company like Product Hunt, get your name out there. Or Sahil Lavingia has done the same thing. And then just start raising a huge fund from your audience. Like I know Sahil has raised millions and millions of dollars just by being active on Clubhouse and Twitter. And then just tweeting out like, hey, anybody can be part of my fund. Right? And if he's, if he's able to raise like 10 or $20 million, I don't think he's gotten there yet. But like, if he is, then like, that's a ridiculous salary for him.
1: Whereas, yeah, like, I think Sahil, by the way, is doing, I think, $10 million a year exclusively off his Twitter audience. Right, which is crazy. It's
0: probably the best way I've ever seen of monetizing a big Twitter audience. You know
1: what the craziest part is? He wanted to help his friend. He, he, he I think he admires Austin Allred, the founder of Lambda School. And um, so he tweeted on Austin's behalf one day and said, Hey, my friend Austin's starting a fund as well. Fill out this Google form if you're interested in indicate your desired check size. And Sahil for Austin also raised Austin a $10 million a year fund <laughs> off one tweet. I hope he got a cut. I, I I mean, how crazy is that? That's Sahil's... Well, it's interesting. It, it speaks to, one, the affinity people have for him, meaning the degree to which they trust and like Sahil. Two, it speaks to him having an audience that is of the correct persona. And three, it speaks to him having built... Basically, intellectual and career credibility in investing so that people believe he'd be the right person to back. So, you know, I mean, years and years and years in the making, but still a pretty phenomenal way to leverage a Twitter audience. Yeah. I I hung out with Sahil actually like a month and a half
0: ago, and we were walking around Seattle talking about like the meaning of life, like what you want to do. And he's like still trying to figure it out, like what brings him happiness. And investing kind of sometimes is it. You know, sometimes he invests in a company that's really cool and he gets really fascinated about it, but sometimes it's just not. And I wonder like what it is for you. You know, assuming you do this investing thing, you make a lot of money for yourself and for your LPs, uh, is this something you do for the rest of your life? Is it that intellectually engaging? Or is it something where you're like, I'm going to make a bunch of money, retire to like a cool place, and then, you know, start a company or do some other project? Is it a means to an end for you?
1: Right. Well, someone once told me that investing is a lot like playing golf. It's something you can still do even decently well into your 80s. 90s, man. Charlie Munger, 98 years old. Just gave like some sort of talk
0: on Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, resigned from a board he was on like last month. Like still active as an investor. His business partner Warren Buffett, ninety one, uh, still active as an investor. eating McDonald's every
1: day. Going in, make it
0: spend billions of dollars to invest. So it's, you're right. I mean, you can do it forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure your your edge and the the degree to which you're tapped into startups and like the current trends probably decreases, but there's still ways to remain competitive, and that's actually really comforting, knowing that I'm building something that will compound over time. Uh, one of the things I'm sort of obsessed with is the nature of what compounds outside of your bank account. So, like, it feels like a glitch in the matrix. Like it feels like you're cheating the system by putting money in a bank account and allowing interest to create compounding returns. And you know, like a dollar turns into like an insane amount over time, right? But similar ways of compounding exist outside of your bank account. That I've always found fascinating where it feels like you push a small domino and it just hits a chain reaction, you build uh-huh. all this leverage. So like building an audience is a phenomenal form of compounding access because as you get bigger, it becomes easier to keep, to get even bigger than you currently are. And yeah, it feels it's kind like, of like this rich get richer phenomenon. Yeah. The bigger you are, the easier it is to keep getting big. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then it feels like investing follows the same sort of dynamic. It feels like the more you invest, uh, the more founders hear about you. And the more you get first look access to great deals, if you're good to founders, and it starts compounding, and you start getting better access. So me in 20 years from now, if I remain on the cutting edge of what's happening trends wise, uh, I should be in an even better position. So I'm, I'm always so. There's a couple dynamics there. One, I like that you can do for a long time, uh, and this is of course the fact that I really enjoy it, which we've already covered a bunch of times. But and the fact that it, it's, it's 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 an accruing type thing. So I like that about it. But to answer your question in terms of uh, is it a means to an end? No, it's something I want to do for a long time. And in terms of what sort of gets me excited, what do I enjoy doing? I'll just tell you broadly, what are the things I enjoy doing? And I don't know if it's the meaning of life for me or anything, but I love reverse engineering things that people think are overwhelmingly complex and teaching them very simply. So people are overwhelmed by learning piano, overwhelmed by learning how to write well, or tell a story. That's what I'm doing on Julian.com. I feel like I'm unlocking the keys of how the world works. I'm just sitting there banging my head against the wall, experimenting. So I love figuring out those secrets um, of how to do really good work in a new domain then sharing it with people. There's Um, almost like an entire class of things people can do
0: where the common wisdom is like, oh, this is just a natural talent. You're just a naturally good writer, just a naturally good singer or naturally good artist. And it's like not true. Almost every one of those things you can learn and break
1: down. 100%. That is what drives me, is people... Coming to realize that that thing they think is out of bounds is not out of bounds. They're just being sort of intellectually lazy to reverse engineer how it works. And I'm obsessed with reverse engineering, how these things work. Um, But yeah, most things I think are actually quite doable. I really do believe that. Meeting people I find fascinating. Like on our pod brains when we get Eric Kripke, uh, the guy who created the boys on Amazon, which I love. I think you like it as well. Awesome show. Awesome Coming out soon. Yeah. We have Tim Urban, who's one of my favorites of all time from whitebutwhy.com, who I absolutely look up to. Um, James Clear, the author, Mark Manson, the author, Tim Dodd, who's Everyday Astronaut, and so on. And so all the content work I've done, the audience I've built, the podcast we've done, this is all in service in large part of meeting people who I find just lovely. And then with the way it all comes together, if I can do some sort of retreat with them in person, this is why I want to go build a ranch somewhere, have a bunch of guest homes, where I'm like, hey, why don't you come by for two weeks, for even a month? I know you have that film coming up. I know you have that blog post or that book you're working on. Let's just do it here, and it'll be silent. I won't bug you. Just enjoy the beauty of wherever we are. And that I find super, super rewarding. And to, get yeah. to just brainstorm an environment with all these people making cool shit at the same time. There's this guy. Uh, I think his name is James Hurst.
0: I stopped by his castle during a road trip I did from L.A. to SF a couple years ago. It's called the Hearst Castle. It's, like, in Central California, and it's massive. And this dude was, like, a media mogul, like, 100 years ago. He owned all the – he bought up all the newspapers. He just owned everything. He controlled public opinion because he was basically not only super rich, but, like, super in control of, basically, the media. And he built this castle that was, like – it's, like, a spectacle. Like, you go there, it's, like, the most – like, no one does this anymore because you would be, like, canceled immediately and, like, raked over the coals on the front page of the New York Times – But it looks like this, like, giant Roman villa with this crazy pool and, like, dozens and dozens of, like, huge guest houses that are, like, way bigger than anyone's house today. And, like, this just, like, palace. And he would just be up in his attic, like, working. And his office was, like, also amazing to look at while he had a bunch of celebrities and intellectuals and thinkers just, like, living on his property because he always wanted to be surrounded by them. So it wasn't even, like, a two-week retreat. It was, like, a permanent state of affairs. His place was, like, a hotel
1: for like the world's like best and most interesting yes. people. Yes. Yeah, man. There, there's something being in person with a bunch of smart people, all working toward a similar goal but independently, like we're all writing something. And then at the end of the day we kind of sit around the fire and we always just chat about what we're working on. We bounce ideas yeah. off each other. That's what I want. And this infectious. Oh my God, yeah. And there's there's a version of this that I find just as interesting. It's outside of my wheelhouse of talent, which is I want to go find the most talented indie musicians on YouTube who have like 50,000 subs and like they're not super well known and they're on Spotify and not a, not a lot of listens, but they're super talented. And I love their music. And I want to get them and bring them all like a few, few at a time into the same type of environment right. and give them a recording studio on their property they can use to go record their next album, get some solace and like just enjoy, enjoy the beauty of the place. Yeah. Um, and I just want to be there and like listen to them play covers and stuff like that I, for whatever reason. That is what my brain's wired to love. Oh, that's cool. To love. Yeah, if you create a place where it's basically, it's got all the
0: tools necessary to have like, an amazing creative experience, and then also, like, crucially, like you said, the people, right? Fellow musicians or writers or founders, like something to get them to all come together, and then you can just be in the room while these brilliant people work together would be awesome because yeah, then you're
1: like a magnet. And you know what's interesting is I hear whispers often but how this already happens. Like if you see five people you love in the book writing space, the yeah. odds of them having gone together by themselves and gone on a retreat somewhere is actually really high. Right. Um, and they do already do this. There's, there's versions of this for like unicorn founders and so on. And I mean, yeah. when we had um, James Clear and Mark Manson on, uh, on Brains, we're
0: like, oh, it'd be awesome to pair these two guys together. And we get on and they're like, oh yeah, when we you know, talk to each other at our writing workshop. Right. And they're like two of the best nonfiction authors who just already swapping ideas, et cetera. Like they're already like old friends by the time we like pair them together. Exactly,
1: exactly. Man, the pod though, I mean, I love talking about that too. I mean, of all the things I'm spending time on, the podcast we do together, brains, it's interesting because if I think about what are the things people bring up to me most frequently when they chat with me or meet me for the first time, there's basically two things. One is, hey, I saw your thread on Twitter about how you're building a ranch. That's super cool. I've always wanted to do that. The other one is our podcast. Like, oh, I was listening to the episode between blah right. and blah. I think what those two things have in common is they're personal. They're things I want to do, or you're hearing my voice, or it's me having a real human conversation with someone. And so it really got me excited to realize that what actually connects with people, perhaps more than me writing these long form guides on how to do some, some skill, how to pursue some skill, is is injecting the personal into it, which isn't a surprise um, in, in hindsight. So I I just love that there's a deeper connection with our pod. I love that it lets us meet these awesome people. And Mm. we have a relatively high quality bar. So I'm just also proud of the work. Yeah. I'm doing the uh, Andy Hackers podcast
0: in like a different way than we do Brains. It's like, for me, it's kind of an experiment. So with Brains, it's like, it's almost like our episodes are, they're almost like blog posts or like essays, right? Like we find these experts or these really interesting people. We put them in a room together and then they just like, it's like hard to listen to a Brains episode without wanting to take notes right because you're just getting like all this amazing high quality insights at a crazy rate but it's also I think on the back end it's like a lot of work for us because it's like all right well how do we (laughs) how do we get in touch with these experts like how do we get them to agree to come on like how do we get like the best episode possible because it's kind of stressful if you get like two world famous people and then you have an hour to record something good with them like if it doesn't go well you can't be like hey let's do it again you know they're gonna be like fuck you I've got other stuff to do so it's like on one hand, like the best possible quality, and on the other hand, like maximum possible stress and work to put it together. And then on Andy Hackers, I'm trying to go the other route. So, like, my goal right now is to convince my brother to be my co host because there's literally no one else on earth that I'm more comfortable just talking to and shooting the shit with than my brother. We're twins, we've been talking to each other for like 35 years now. And so, for that, I just want to crank out episodes, have it be super chill, have my brother and I talk to different Andy Hackers that we've met or just talk to each other about like Andy Hacker trends and news and stuff. And have it be the opposite, where it's like ideally high quality, but it feels like there's almost no work that has to go into the, the different episodes, and then like compare the team and see how it goes.
1: Yeah, I, I. This is the problem with our pod. You, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a lot of work. It, it it feels like we're sitting down to do homework. It's not like Joe Rogan. You turn on the camera, you just start riffing. And so the downside is we figured out is we have we can't do a high volume of episodes, and so. With podcast growth, as you know, you have to have a very high volume uh, in order to give yourself a real shot at growing because growing pods is notoriously hard. Like the best way to do it is you anchor off a YouTube a channel so that you piggyback on YouTube's own clip virality to bring folks over to your pod on Spotify or Apple or whatever. But because we don't have a video component, we've already shot ourselves in the foot on that criterion Second, we're doing low volume, and our buddies who host My First Million are doing super high volume, which is really helpful. Right, like three Uh, episodes a week. Yeah, and they're topical, so they're covering trends that you want to get the hottest take on. We're doing non-topical evergreen stuff. So everything we're doing (laughs) is crafted to grow this thing slowly, but it feels so rewarding to have this evergreen content library that I can point to. It'll be as useful in a decade from now, and I know that for sure. Yeah. And that exactly. just makes me feel good because I don't want to spend time on fleeting stuff people only care about in the moment. It's not what gives me like, I don't get any kicks from that. But then the problem you and I have had is it's hard to put out enough episodes to be consistent and really grow the, the listenership. Yep. Yeah. And so I think what I'm starting to to believe as of the last like month while you're away traveling is that we should just whenever we have a good episode, we should just release it and trust that people will stick with us over time. Whatever the cadence is. It doesn't have to be every two weeks. And the reason I have the confidence in that is because we had this enormous like four-month gap between episodes just now and people still were with us. Yeah. So, like, whatever. Let's just do it without the pressure of trying to hit this frequency, which we can't hit. And just when we have fantastic episodes, we just do it. It's a good trade-off. And you and I have talked about we talked about this, we kind of theorized about it
0: before we started Brains, which is there's some shows where the quality is so high and it's so evergreen that they don't have to be consistent. Right? Like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I love that show. Sometimes he doesn't release a new podcast series for like nine months right but he doesn't lose his listenership in fact it just grows over time because it's like when they drop you're like oh shit this is what i want to hear right or a musical artist right like if you like into radiohead or any other band or something it might take them years to come up with a new album but like you're still there for it when it happens whereas if you're doing this more like topical sort of daily show or every other day show if you take a break you're going to lose your audience because the value you're providing is something that they can get on a daily basis from other people you know they might want it from you because they might like your personality more but i think you're a little bit more on the hook so it's this balance between like do you have a really easy fun to record show but you got to keep recording it (laughs) or do you have like a harder show that takes much more effort but you can take long breaks and i think if you're on either one of those extremes you're fine but if you're in the middle you're dead like you don't want to be in between exactly Let's let's go back to talking about investing because i got a few questions I want to – I like stuff I want to learn from you about investing and, like, things I want to, like, push on. So one of the things that you're pretty, I would say, bullish on is, like, the market. Uh, How do you figure out which companies are worth investing in? Well, as an investor, you only have so much money, right? You can't invest in every company. You don't want to because you'd lose money, and so you got to, like, figure out, like, what's important. And I think you subscribe to the theory of, like, what matters more than the founders or the team is – Are the founders basically building building in the right space? This is something that I think investors think about, but founders don't think that much about. Founders are just like, I have a cool idea. I'm going to, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do, you know, I want to build this product. But they don't think about, like, well, what market is this product in? Is this growing? Is this getting more popular? What are your thoughts on that? Like, is that something founders should think more about? And why do you care more about that than the team?
1: Yeah, I care about both. I care about the team and I care about market, uh, but I care about the market more. And so to be more specific, what I care about is market pull. And there's this framework that Sean Purry, our friend, came up with, which is like a two by two grid, and and one of them, one of the sort of criteria is how good is the founder, and the other criteria is how good is the market. And so if you have a founder who's who's amazing, and the market is pulling the idea out of the founder, that's what we call market pull. That's the best possible scenario. But if you have a market pull scenario, meaning the market badly wants this product from you but the founders are just competent, they're not amazing, that still can be an excellent investment opportunity. Now, if we flip that around, if it's market push, which is the opposite of market pull, meaning like it's going to be a slog to grow this product because people don't realize they want it, or if they do want it, it's too high friction to start using it. It's a real push into the market to get adoption. If you have a market push scenario with all that friction to go to market, and the founder... Is only competent? No way would I invest. And if I, if I have a market push scenario, because it's so hard in the first place, I need a killer founder. But if the founder is killer, and it's a market push scenario, right? Then it's still going to be a long slog, even if the founder is amazing. Yeah. And so then going back to our ideal scenario, founder is amazing and market pull. The market's pulling us out of them. That's what I'm looking for. So if we use this framework. I can try to give you some examples of what does market pull actually look like. And so market pulls, basically you create a product and people are dying to use it. So it either means when you bring it to their attention, sales and conversions through the roof. Cause like of course, of course I needed that. There's a waiting for some, something like that to even exist. Didn't even know that thing could exist. So that's one little taste of, you knowing you're, you're experiencing some market pull. Another taste is you build a product and it sucks. It's broken. It's hard to use, but people are using it and staying anyway. That's a pretty good sign. There's some serious pull happening here. Yeah. And so I I love that one because I think a lot of founders get
0: stuck in this trap where they're like, let me just pop like if if I just like round the corners of this budget, this button, and I add this one more feature, like I make my homepage slightly like doing all this work to make their product absolutely perfect. And like, no one's using it. And there's so many products where it's like, this sucks. (laughs) You know, like I had like a very, very mediocre sandwich from like this restaurant the other day, but it was in the middle of this crowded venue. And guess what? Like the line was out the door. Like the product wasn't that good, but it was like in the right market where it was like, people just needed this. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, here, let me, let me dive in a bit further to add even more color to this. So what I've noticed, so the man curve is a company I founded for listeners context and we help other companies grow. And there's about 60,000 folks in the community. So we teach them growth marketing. When you have as much purview on, on startups as, as I've had historically, what I started noticing is that the companies most likely to be worth a billion or two, regardless of founder quality, were those who had market pull. But what you needed in order to go from, let's say, a billion to 50 billion was a killer team or a team that became killer over time. They grew into those shoes. And so the way I like to think of it, and this is very broad strokes, I'm definitely you know smoothing out the nuances, but I think of it like this. You need market pull to get to a billion or so for the mo- uh, on average, and then you need an amazing team to get to 50 billion. So that's how I think about it. So when I'm investing in, in a founding team, I'm not looking for a team that's necessarily capable of building a $50 billion company today. I'm looking for a growth curve, just like you're betting on a startup with a growth curve. Where is the founder's ability to keep learning? So I wanna give you guys some examples of uh, what are those companies in demand curve that became worth a billion or two billion the fastest? And what did they have in common? So what I realized is when I started breaking it down in the spreadsheet, the companies growing the fastest due to market pull basically categorized into maybe four or five categories. So the first was companies like Webflow or Zapier or Softer, which is one I invested in, that makes an annoying problem like four times easier such that it feels like magic. Like with Webflow, to make a website from scratch without Webflow, before Webflow was like, all right, that's a two- to four-week process. Webflow, I can do it in two days, or I can do it in a couple hours. So you're removing a quantifiable huge amount of pain and making it magically quick. Zapier, same thing. Integrating tools before Zapier was a huge pain in the ass with Zapier's. Now I just do some visual no-code drag-and-drop, and I can connect Webflow to customer I.O. or MailChimp. In seconds. I, I, literally, I literally am saving a month's worth of work and I'm only paying 80 bucks a month or whatever for the software. That is insane. You know, an engineer normally costs what per month? 10K plus? I mean, it's an insane, magical-like experience. So that was the first category. Any company that made something that was a huge pain in the ass feel like magic uh, was the first category I saw where there was a high likelihood of there therefore being market pull. Another one was where I saw companies that were making something that's very desirable, that everyone wants, uh, but is expensive, less expensive. So Airbnb made hotel stays less expensive when it came out. Robinhood made trading less expensive because they removed trading fees. So people were already going to stay in hotels. They were already going to trade in the stock market, but those two products, made it cheaper so why would you not choose the cheaper option so that was the second condition where if founders listening to this are like what are some mental models i can have for deciding which of two startup ideas i have should i prioritize i would like to think that this framework i'm sharing where's the market pull is the best way to prioritize well i want to make a comment here because
0: i think like one of the common sort of themes between both of these that i think everyone should pay attention to that strikes me is that like Both of these sort of, I guess, criteria for success hinge on, like, you take something people already want and then you do something. You make it easier. You make it cheaper. You make it whatever, right? But you're starting with something people already want, which means that you're not really being that creative with which problems you solve. You're being more creative. Like, all the work is going into, like, your unique way that you solve it. Does that make sense? So, like, people have been building websites forever, People have been, like, writing code forever. Like, Zapier isn't helping people solve a new problem that they haven't had for the last 20 or 30 years, right? Webflow is like a website builder. <laughs> There's been website builders before. Like, software, the same thing. Like, Airbnb, like, people People have been wanting to stay at hotels and houses for, like, like, millennia, you know? And I think one thing that a lot of founders get wrong is they try to be way too clever with the problem they solve. You know, they try to solve some problem that no one has ever solved before. But, like, all of these huge companies that are killing it are solving problems that, like, people have already solved a whole bunch of times before, just in different ways. You know, like, some of the biggest companies I see are, like, helping people get educated, like, teaching people. You know, helping people transport each other and get from place to place. Helping people build websites. Helping people, like, helping companies hire engineers. Like, the most, like, straightforward, boring problems ever. Even indie hacker companies. Like, most indie hackers are not trying to become the next billion-dollar unicorn. They're just trying to like you know build something that can make them a few million dollars you know so they can survive on their own Or, you know ten thousand dollars a month is great for most single indie hackers but like when I see people on the indie hackers forum talking about crushing it like often they're just like it's like Peter Levels he's like a job board <laughs> you know it's not it's not that crazy right it's uh, there was someone on the indie hackers homepage the other day who just raised like twenty seven million dollars Series A uh, app right and they're like okay they're helping developers host their code on, like, it's not that new, you know? One company I invested in, Riverside, that's what we're using to record this podcast, right? Like, they help people record podcast episodes. People have been recording podcast episodes for 20 years, you know? And so there's already, like, this very strong market pool where people already have this problem, and that's not the risk. And ideally, you're solving this problem that people are already really want to solve, and an increasing number of people want to solve that problem every year. Like every year, more people want to build websites, more people want to record
1: podcasts, et cetera. Absolutely. And it's not to say that you have to pursue something that's very obviously in demand, but it is to say that if you follow that advice, the odds of you succeeding are way higher. And the odds of you getting uh, funding from investors is also way higher. Because of course, you'll have some weird anomaly companies who pioneer something no one even knew they wanted, But even then, they're usually actually satisfying what people already wanted just in a very clever solution. Yeah. Like people didn't know they wanted randos to drive them around, but Uber made sense and and blew up because people already needed transportation and taxis. So it usually comes down to something. That's already hugely in in demand, you know? The the solution is creative, right? We're getting at random people to drive you around. The solution's creative. The problem should not be creative. That's exactly right.
0: The problem is super boring and straightforward. That's exactly right. I want to get from place to place. That's
1: exactly right. Here, we can actually use the framework that you just shared uh, to to go through a couple more examples of categories here. So another company I invested in is called Republic.com. It's crowdfunding uh, for startups and so forth. And it's kind of like GoFundMe for startups. You can think of it that way. And crypto and real estate. And they're another example of a category of business that almost guaranteed has some market pull, which is Republic made access to a certain asset class more available to everyday people. So Republic is making is allowing everyday people who are not accredited to invest in startups, even though they don't have a large amount of net worth. If if Robinhood introduces crypto into the product, and people otherwise found it too hard to use non-Robinhood alternatives to getting access to crypto, they're making new access available to an asset class. That is almost always a surefire bet for market pull because if it's an asset class people wanted but simply lacked access to because it was too high friction uh, or they didn't have the the net worth requirements, let's say, to engage in the asset class, then they're going to be like, fuck, well, let me diversify some of my money into that asset class. Another example is, Equi, E-Q-U-I.com. I also invest in that one. I just keep saying that so people don't think I'm, uh, you know, in a, uh, secretly shelling. <laughs> companies. But Equi is giving, is trying to give people hedge fund like returns. So they're making, they're like democratizing hedge fund as an asset class for everyday people who aren't worth $100 million. Of course they're going to have market pull because you're saying here's a new way to make money. People are going to diversify into it. So yeah. that's another category. One more. And this is this this speaks exactly to what you said a moment ago, Cortland, which is things that are already in the market that people already want, already proven. So this is the ultimate example of that. If you invest internationally, so if you're a company in Pakistan and you're doing a unicorn business model proven elsewhere in the U.S., like if you're doing DoorDash for Pakistan, well, guess what? That exists. It's called Airlift, and they're. Uh, maybe they've raised the most funding ever for a Pakistani startup, or at least within the top two or three, I believe. Um, Or like the the Postmates of Venezuela is called Yummy. And they also are growing crazy fast and raise a ton of money very easily. So this sort of analogizing across geographies. Now, not every unicorn in the US or Europe or wherever will be a unicorn in an emerging market. But if it is a culturally and economically relevant product to that geo and the timing's right, then it has a very high chance, relatively speaking, of being a unicorn, again, of having market pull. So these are the frameworks I've been thinking of. It's like, are you making something way easier like Zapier? Are you making something that people are already spending money on cheaper than it's ever been like Airbnb or Robinhood? Are you giving people access to new asset class? Are you analogizing unicorns proven elsewhere in new geographies or even as new sectors like we, the Zapier for enterprise or the Webflow for developers? Like there are analogies all over the place. Actually, there's one one last one I keep saying. is like Lord of the Rings. Or I have like five endings. To my point, <laughs> this, is the last, this is the last one. Uh, the very last uh, in my notes here is product led growth as a uh, as, as, as let's say the final category of market pull. So this is how Dropbox and Slack and PayPal grew, which is where this is actually something we, we touched on in our last podcast together on indie hackers, so I won't go into it fully, is, does the use of the product naturally grow the product? And so if I use PayPal and I'm paying someone a1,000 bucks, there's no way they won't make a PayPal account to receive their1,000 dollars. They same thing with a Venmo account. Or if I'm using Slack and it's the only way I talk with my team and my vendors, I'm going to invite all my team members and all my vendors and contractors onto Slack. So the use of the product inherently gets existing users to invite other people onto the product. And so that's product-led growth. That's the dream. And when that kicks off, that can just be insane market pull because the users are doing their growth for you. And I'll wrap up by saying... I started realizing there's two ways product-led growth actually happens. And I'm probably broad strokesing this way too much. And I'm sure there's a ton of nuances I'm I'm, I'm glossing over. But the two ways I see it happening are when you are settling a debt. So you're paying someone like Deal or Remote or PayPal or Venmo. You're paying someone money and they have to take the GoFundMe Republic. You're transferring money and someone wants to claim that money. That is one of the scenarios where product-led growth will kick off. And the other one is when you're facilitating critical communication. So Slack or Telegram or WhatsApp grow crazy fast because there's a group there. You have a Telegram group with your friends or on WhatsApp or Signal where you're gonna wanna be part of your friends or your, 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 your colleagues. And the only way to be part of it is for you to join the group where they already are. So facilitating critical communication and facilitating the transfers of monies is, are there two conditions that I've seen where the odds of product-led growth just kind of shoot through the roof?
0: Yeah. And that's like the dream that every indie hacker wants, right? I, w- I want to not have to do marketing for my product and just watch it just grow <laughs> automatically without me having to do every- anything because the product grows itself. And it's so rare. It's like so hard to engineer that. Everybody's trying to engineer that. But if you get it,
1: it's crazy. It's the holy grail. And if you look at the top sort of tech companies in the public markets, like Dropbox and Slack and PayPal, all the, uh, almost all the huge ones uh, follow this pattern. Not all of them, but mo- most yeah. of them do. Yeah. yeah. I like your other
0: factors too. Like, for example, if something's working in one market, take it to a different market. Like, it's most of it is just de-risking, right? You, you start a startup, you start a company, and there's so many unknown unknowns. You have all these hypotheses and guesses for, like, why it's going to do well, but you don't actually know that those things are true until you put your products in the market. And so if you can de-risk it by basically saying, well, like, I know this is true for this other website or this other company, like, people liked DoorDash, right? Like, it's not in Pakistan, so, like, maybe I should try that. And I think one of the danger zones is, like, when you, when you like, try to do too many risky things at once. You know, like, if you're, like, I'm going to have this completely innovative problem that no one's ever solved before and a completely innovative solution and I'm going to have an innovative culture for my team and I'm going to have, like, different work hours. And Like, if you just, like, try to innovate in, like, 15 different areas, like, okay, well, like, you're dead if even one of them fails. And so it's like much better if you can just like de-risk as much as possible and have like maybe one or two things that are new or different or unique because you need that to stand out. But like beyond that, I think it's probably overkill.
1: Yeah, a good framework for founders to start thinking about is the risk framework uh, for when they're putting together a pitch deck or they're choosing what to work on. Is Investors are often thinking about your company uh, broken down by a few categories of risk. One is market risk. Will the market want this product? And this is what this whole spiel about market pull is in service of addressing. Uh, So you can have market risk. Another one you can have is you can say team risk. Is this team the right team to execute this idea? Uh, do their backgrounds prove they know what to do here? Do they impress me on the call? Have they really studied it and so on? Um, Are they emotionally tied to to solving the problem? Another type of risk is business model risk. Will the economics even make sense? Like a lot of these quick commerce companies, that are delivering food all around the world in like 10 minutes, their unit economics suck and they're not profitable and they have business model risk because they're not sustainable and they're burning cash. Um, uh, and so there, there are other types of risk as well, but the risk that is most, for, for, I'll just speak for me myself a, as one investor, that is most valuable for you to attack in a pitch and make me feel really good about is market risk. Because if you can convince me of the potential for market pull, I'm willing to forego my concerns for risk on almost all of the other ones to some extent. I believe that where the customer demand is, you'll be able to solve the rest of the problems. But where customer demand is not, you will not be able to solve that problem.
0: I think that's what you want to do for yourself as a founder too. If you're like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and work on this company that I think we are going to be able to use or going to want to use. But, like, you don't actually have any signal that, like, de-risks, like, does the market care? Like, that's a huge risk for you, too, not just for investors, right? And so I think it's much easier. Like, for Andy Hackers, for example, the example I always share is, like, it wasn't that, like, much of a mystery to me whether or not people wanted to consume these stories about bootstrapped founders because I already saw it happening on other websites, you know? Like I wasn't taking a huge risk. Like, oh, you know, does anybody want this solution? It's like, no, they do for sure. I just need to make it better and make it more concentrated than it exists elsewhere. And so I think that's also like why investors like seeing, you know, hey, you already have traction. People are already using your startup. Like that makes it way easier for me to want to invest.
1: Absolutely. And once you've once you've established that traction, you've conveyed that. The next thing to think about is how much, how bigger, how much bigger can this be? What is the journey from making this? Uh, De risk from a market pulse endpoint to something that could be huge. Uh, so that's the other thing you want to focus on usually. So that's something that like indie
0: hackers won't have for the most part. Mm. And I'm curious, like, what your take is on this and let you go. Like, does it make sense to be an indie hacker? Does it make sense to put like hours and hours every week, you know, your blood, sweat, and tears into building some sort of online business and not trying to make it a billion dollar unicorn? You know, like, is it is it, is it essentially the same amount of work just to go for the gold?
1: No, I would generally not go for the gold, probably. I mean, it depends. Okay, I would start with where your heart is. What do you actually want to do? And if the idea you want to do is one that necessitates a bunch of venture capital and can be enormous, fantastic. But if you'd rather do something that is likely smaller, uh, perhaps do the smaller thing because it's no worse. I mean, when you do the economics of you raise all this money, you get a bunch of dilution. You're only left with X percent of the company. And you can't really pay yourself anything huge. You can take some money off the table during secondary transactions and blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, you're not going to see money for maybe a decade. So that's the venture path. Right. Now, the indie hacker's path is you are paying yourself an enormous salary as much as you possibly can every year, which is amazing if you're making a million dollars a year after year three or something like this. Um, You don't have VC pressure. So you can do what's healthy for the business and what's healthy for your mind. Uh, and that's what you can be optimizing for. And you can still sell it when you're done and you have almost full ownership of it. So let's say it's making $2 million a year and you sell it for X many millions. That all becomes yours. So you get this payday at the end too. So from a financial standpoint, no, I don't think there's any reason to go for gold if the idea that you're obsessed with doesn't already lend itself to that go for gold. Um, and so personally, I would probably generally prefer an idiot hacker type approach. It just depends yeah. on the idea. Yeah. I might start
0: investing at some point. We'll see. I like this idea of having, like, trying to build a portfolio of 35 companies and writing super small checks, because even that's enough to learn. And, like, I think that I have the sort of the clout and the reputation to do that. Like, people will let me into their companies, even though, you know, I'm not necessarily providing that much value at small amounts to some degree. Uh, And then we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Maybe I'll have you on again, and I'll report my progress to you.
1: Yeah, we'll do episode 900 together. Um... (laughs)
0: Episode 900. All right, dude. Uh, is there anything you want to plug, like any last sort of tips or resources for any hackers out there who might want to learn how to invest or build better companies or invest with you? Like, what do you,
1: what do you think people should know about? Yeah, I would say with carveout.com. So we made a private email list for folks in tech who want to start investing in some of the fastest growing startups that we come across. It's kind of like an angelus syndicate if folks have heard of that. So it's a bit hard to get on the list, but if you get on, you'll see some really, really good deals in my opinion. So that's, that's carve out. That's where I'm spending a bunch of my time. And then we also have um, Hyper.com, which is uh, sort of like a founder program like Accelerator where we invest in founders and and, and pair them up with some phenomenal unicorn founders to give them advice uh, and help them just do do distribution better, do product better, and do hiring better.
0: Cool. Hyper.com and withcarveout.com. Thanks a ton, Julian, for coming on the show. Yeah,
1: thanks, man. Loved it.